0: It's kind of hard with the words on the board not to sing that. Oh, I did sing it. I was sitting down here. I hope you couldn't hear me, but it was, wow. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, he is my life. Love that song. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 7. As we continue our study of this great Letter by the Apostle Paul and come to the 13th verse. The 13th verse. Now, in just a few moments, we will spend some time thinking about this table. The table is set, the table is ready, the table is a picture, the table is a, a demonstration of something that took place 2,000 years ago. The, the table is observed by the Christian church regularly some more regularly than others some I think far not enough but it's to come to this table to be reminded of what Christ did on that last night that he lived on the face of the earth and I want to say that this table has absolutely no meaning whatsoever if sin is not a reality just doesn't if sin is not a reality if it's all just a, a bunch of problems and 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 hang-ups and environmental problems, then, then, then this table means absolutely nothing. The, the symbolism here of the blood of Christ being shed and the body of Christ being given on the cross means absolutely nothing. If sin is not a reality. Now you say, Bill, of course sin's a reality. We know that sin is a reality. We, we, we talk about sin being a reality and and everything else. But but I want you to understand that in our day that may not be the case. Several, seems like centuries ago, it's just a few decades ago, in 1973, I was sitting in classes as a young psychology major at Jacksonville State University, finishing up my degree uh, with the Eye Towards Seminary, and I was in a class called Abnormal Psychology. It fit. I was glad to be there. I probably needed it in some ways, but, but I was in abnormal psychology. And Dr. Patterson, who was my favorite professor of all my professors, he was an atheist. He thought I was an idiot for going into the ministry when he said I could make a lot of money being a psychologist at that point. But uh, he, he really thought I was crazy, but I, I knew what I was doing, I thought. But we sat in that class, and Dr. Patterson, knowing that I was there, I think, he, he spent an extraordinary amount of time one class talking about how There is no soul, that the soul is a human construct and that the soul does not exist. As a matter of fact, Dr. Patterson said, the mind does not exist. There's no such thing as a mind or there's a brain that operates this body that we have, but there's no mind, there's no soul, there's no spirit. We are just sort of advanced animals on the face of the earth and we need to get used to that and live our lives in accordance with that. It was amazing that about the same time I was in that abnormal psychology class, a psychologist out in, in Topeka, Kansas, by the name of Dr. Carl Menninger, wrote a book. And somebody gave it to me when I was in that class. The title of the book was quite appropriate, the same as my sermon title today, Whatever Became of Sin? Whatever Became of Sin? And Menninger, who founded the famous Menninger Clinic there and, and has ministered and served a lot of people through the years, Carl Menninger posed the question, if there is no sin, then what's, what are we doing? Of course there is sin, but we've, we've taken sin and we've really began to argue that we've totally redefined it out of existence. Menninger said at first, sin was redefined as crime criminals are, are, are not sinners. They're just criminals. They, they violate the law against somebody else or they violate the law against the state. And so what once was called sin and rebellion against God is now simply crime. But he said it went a little further. Later we started redefining it beyond crime and started talking about rather than being a transgression of the law against uh, it's a transgression of the law against man in crime, rather than transgression of the law against God. He said. Then we started talking about it was really symptoms. What we once called sin were now symptoms. You know, I'm I'm am a victim. My environment, my family, my mother, my father, my 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 great 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 grandfather. I don't know who, but but you know, because the environment we find ourselves in. We behave badly, not because we are sinners, not because we have sin, but we behave badly because we are just, we're just victims of our environment. And Menager went on to argue that this is not good. Because when we redefine all sin as something else, then we dismiss it. Then we say, sin's not really a problem. Man's not really a sinner. Now, I understand that taking place out in the culture. That's a normal thing. I mean, let's face it. But but folks, I would contend to you that it's beginning to be the norm within many churches across this land, especially many of the mainline churches. It's it's no longer that there is sin and, and, and that sin needs to be dealt with and sin needs to be repented of and sin needs to be forgiven by Christ. But now it's just... We need to get therapy. We need to get some help somewhere. And if we can get help, we can get better. Paul says in verse 13, here's the root problem. Listen to this verse. Did that which is good, that is the law, bring death to me? By no means. God forbid. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And, th- and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. We can call it crime, we can call it symptoms, we can call it environmental conditions, we can call it whatever we want to, but Paul says, and God says in His Word, no matter how you try to redefine it, sin is sin, and we are, blame, we are to blame for the sin. It's not the law of God that's to blame, it's not our parents that are to blame, it's ourselves that are to blame, and that has to be dealt with. Sin, whether we acknowledge it or not, is present. The old London Baptist Catechism, also known as Keach's Catechism from the, from the 1600s, asked this question, verse 18, said, what is sin? It's a legitimate question. Again, today it have many different kind of answers, or either just say there's no such thing. But Keech's Catechism, the London Baptist Catechism said that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is any want, we don't talk that way today pretty much, want of conformity. Sin is not conforming to the Word of God, not conforming to the commands of God, not conforming to what God has shown us to be true and right, or it's transgression of going against, pulling against what God has said in His Word. We we can try to call it whatever we want to, but the fact is, sin is a reality. And, And some might say, well, it's so negative yeah, it really is. Well, we don't like negativity. We like positivity. You know, we like to be positive. We don't like negative things. Folks, as I've said over and over and over again, until you deal with the bad news of the gospel, you'll never be ready to understand and appreciate the good news of the gospel. Until we recognize that sin is a problem within ourselves, we'll never be ready to know the good news of the gospel. And that's what Paul is wanting us to see here. Even in verses 7 through 12 that we looked at several weeks ago, Paul shows the reality of sin and law and their their interaction with one another, their purpose with one another. He says three things about it in those verses. I won't reread them, but you'll remember them. He says, first of all, the law reveals sin to be sin. The, The law can't make us right with God. The law can't give us a new nature. The the law can only show us what is in violation of God. And and we'll look at that in just a minute, a little more in depth. But Paul says, I want you to understand, the law reveals sin to be sin. Then he said that sin, operating and seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandments of God, creates in man a surge of rebellion. A a desire to, to say, wait a minute, I don't have to do that. If God says I'm not to do it, by Jiminy, I'm going to do it. Or if God says you ought to do that, I'm going to say I'll do my own thing. I'll do my own life. I'll do what I want to do. I'm not going to obey what God says. The law says here's what you ought to do or what you ought not do. And that sin within us says I'll just be what I want to be and do what I want to do when I want to do it. Paul says sin causes that surge because the law shows us that. And then he said that this being the way it is, that the law operating within us in such a way and operating upon sin brings us to the end of ourselves. He says, for the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is absolute absolute separation from the grace and the love of God. The wages of sin is death, spiritual death apart from the love and the grace of our heavenly father now paul is continually pointing back here and talking about the law and and we've talked about how in in paul's day the law had become a real a real spaghetti junction kind of thing of all sorts of regulations and 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 statements and do's and don'ts and how far you could walk on the lord's day or on, on the sabbath or how far you could do this all those things take into account but But what Paul is thinking of primarily here is the law of God in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments. He's primarily thinking about what God said to be true and right when he gave that law to Moses on those stone tablets. You know there are two tablets. The first tablet has four commandments on it and those relate to our relationship with God. The second tablet has six commandments on it, and those flowing out of the first four. The the last ones have no real meaning apart from the first four. But the the second six flowing out of the first four talk about our relationship with one another. You know, the things like you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not covet, you shall not do all those things. All of those things are part of the the prohibitions of the law in our relationship with one another. But friend, unless you understand the first four, you do not understand the essence of what the law is all about. Just quickly, we won't take but a minute here, but turn with me over to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. The uh, children of Israel have come out of, the, out of Egypt, and going into the promised land, and God gives them the law. And, and they're there in in plain words and it's, it's kind of interesting I think that the the first four laws the first four statements that have to do with God are the most wordy they're they're the most defined if you will I mean when it gets down to you shall not commit murder that's just all he says he doesn't say you shall not commit murder because you know taking another life is wrong and you you hurt other people if you murder them obviously and going to all that kind of stuff He doesn't say when you murder somebody, their blood's on your head and and, and you got all this. He just says, you shall not murder. Don't murder, period. But when he looks at those first four, uh, one through four, he, he makes them fairly expressive. In verse two, verse one says, the Lord spoke all these words saying, verse two, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. I'm the one who brought you out of slavery and I'm to be the only God. I am your only God. There are no other gods. Don't start playing around with the false gods, of the Canaanites and the false gods that you're going to find in the lands that you're going to go through, you keep your focus on me, you keep your eyesight on me, you concentrate on me because I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of slavery. It's Just as much true for us as it was for the Israelites. They came out of a physical slavery of Egypt, yes, but he has brought us out of slavery to sin and self, hasn't he? Of course he has he set us free by his grace through the power of christ and the power of the holy spirit in our life he has set us free and, and so when we hear him saying i am the lord your god you shall have no other gods before me this is a command for us to worship the true and the living god alone nobody else i like what stott says about that in his little commentary he says It is not necessary to worship the sun, the moon, and the stars to break this commandment, break this law. We break it whenever we give to something or someone other than God himself the first place in our thoughts or our affections. It may be some engrossing sport or some absorbing hobby or some selfish ambition, or it may be someone whom we idolize. We may worship a God of gold and silver in the form of safe investments and a healthy bank balance or a god of wood and stone in the form of property and possessions sin is fundamentally for the exaltation of self at the expense of God and then he went on to say it's always said of the Englishman and been written of the Englishman he is a self-made man who worships his creator I need to let that sink in a minute. He's a self-made man who worships his creator, not the creator, but the one who made him himself. That's the essence of what God is talking about in that first commandment. The second commandment is similar to it, but it's not only that you're just to worship the one true God, There is generational sin for those who hate God, for those who refuse to acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ. But he said to those who, those who love me, I show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who desire to walk in my way, walk in my commandment. So the first commandment dealt with the object of our worship. The second commandment really deals with our being forbidden to worship the true and living God in just any way we want to. Like Stott said, you don't have to worship the sun or the moon or an animal to violate this second commandment either. You, you can say, well, I'm worshiping God, but I'm doing it through some kind of object. I, I, I built something that helps me to think about God, and so I worship this, I, I worship this, this graven image, this idol, this thing that, that I just use to remind me of, of Him. We, we can do that with the cross if we're not careful. The cross is a great symbol of the, of the faith of Christianity. But if you've got to have a cross in order to worship, you, you can't, you're not really worshiping. You're, you're looking at an idol, you're looking at a graven image. So, what does this mean? It, well, it, it, it's a condemnation of idol worship, but it's also a text that's forbidding us, us to worship God by any other means than what he has prescribed. We can't do it our own way. We also worship unworthily when we just simply go through the forms of worship. This morning, we could be guilty of violating the second commandment by by simply just going through the motions, not really focusing on... I mean, we sang some great hymns this morning. We sang some great truths about the living God. And and it's easy to just kind of go through the motions. And not think about things about, I will wait for you, Lord. If you counted my sin against me, I could not stand. My sins are great, but I've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. I I wait for you to do your work, and I desire for you to do your work in my life every single day. Then there's a third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You, you might say, you, you may not misuse the name of the Lord. Is the idea that comes through in the commandments there. I love what the, the Puritan writer Thomas Watson said about taking the Lord's name in vain. We tend to think of it as, as you know, saying cuss words. That, that's how we... To, oh, we took the Lord's name in vain. We, we say, oh my, and, and that's taking his name in vain. Or we say, put it on with, a, with a, another word that kind of, oh, it's taking God's name in vain. Well, Thomas Watson, who was never at a shortage for points, said there were 12 ways that we can violate this commandment. 12 simple ways. One, we, we take God's name in vain when we speak lightly and irreverently of his name. Don't have to have a curse word attached to it. It Just when we when we speak lightly of him, maybe the OMG might be a a classification in that, you know, that that we just flippantly and lightly and irreverently use his name. Secondly, Watson says "When when we profess God's name, but do not live answerably to it. When we profess his name, we say, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer. But we do not live our lives answerably to the name of Christ. To to, uh, you know, what is he wanting in my life? What is he desiring to do in my life? Am I willing to obey whatever he says to do or wherever he says to go? Third Watson says, we take the Lord's name in vain when we use God's name in idle discourse. Just an idle conversation, just kind of throw him in as though. He's going to shore up your argument with somebody or your position. We take God's name in vain when we worship Him with our lips, but not with our hearts. That's casually, not wholeheartedly coming before the Lord. We take His name in vain. We take His name in vain when we pray to Him, but do not believe Him. When we pray just hollow prayers and saying, Lord, I'd really like you to do this. I really don't think you can do it, but if you can, you will, maybe, but I don't know. When we pray to him, but don't believe in him. When we six, when we in any way we profane, profane and abuse his word. You see, God is clearly identified with his word. The, the word of scripture, the word of God, the, the word of Christ. and and so when we, when we profane it or abuse it and twist it and try to make it our own, uh, fit our own rationale for how we want to live and, and get somehow get God's approval of something that He disapproves of, then we take His name in vain. Number seven, you recognize when we swear by God's name. Number eight, when we prefix God's name with any wicked action. Nine, when we use our tongues anyway to dishonor God's name. When we make, 10, when we make rash and unlawful vows. In other words, when we are breaking the other commandment of bearing a false witness, not telling the truth. When we speak evil of God. When we blame Him. When we blame Him for what our situation in life is we say Lord it's not fair it's not fair everybody wants fairness until they realize that fairness in God's terms is justice and justice in God's term is not grace and then nobody wants fairness but the truth is we speak evil of God and accuse him evilly and in 12th he says we violate this commandment when we falsify our promise. We just don't keep our word. You shall not take the name of your Lord in vain. Then he says, number four, the last one related to God, and the last one we'll really look at this morning before we come to the table. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughters or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, I'm not a strict Sabbatarian. That's obvious because I'm not worshiping on Sabbath. I'm worshiping on the Lord's Day, I'm worshiping on Sunday. That all changed with the resurrection of Christ. That all changed with the, with the coming of redemption. And, and the Lord's Day was set apart as the day for His worship. Now, there's a lot of controversy about that. you got Seventh-day Adventists. you got Seventh-day Baptists. I, somebody gave me a couple of weeks ago a little ad that was in the paper that they're, they're forming a, uh, planting a Seventh-day Baptist church uh in uh in somerset sabbath baptist church they're calling they're gonna meet on saturday well there's there's argument there i'm sure that that we could discuss i mean the, the the commandment does say that but there are many things that when christ fulfilled the law he fulfilled it in the glory of his atonement and that's what takes place in the lord's day but let me tell you something the lord's day is to be a day where we set apart for rest and worship It's to be a day where we we glorify God, where we we seek to, to express our praises to Him above everything else. It's a day where we say, we come together for the sole purpose of being together as a covenant body to worship our Father, to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And all of those... While we don't live by the law, all of those God uses to point us to where our sin is, because as Paul says in, in Romans chapter seven verse thirteen, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. It was that failing to conform to, or the failing to, uh, to, to, uh, or, or the going against the perfect will and purpose and law of God. And it's something we can't deal with on our own. It brings us back to the table. It brings us back to the bread and the fruit of the vine, the juice, the fruit of the grapes that that symbolize the blood of the new covenant. It's poured out for us. And the bread, which symbolizes, as he took it that night and he broke it, he said, This is my body, which is given for you. And all of that pointing to the cross, and all of that pointing to the atonement, but all of that saying to you and me 2,000 years later, listen carefully sin is a problem. It's not something to be taken lightly, it's not something to be denied. It's not something to pass off on some, well, if, if they hadn't have done this, I wouldn't have done that. Passing the buck is one of the greatest attempts to get away from sin that you'll ever find. Well, you know, it's not my, my, my wife did that and that's how I just reacted. Not my wife, you're generally speaking. We, we just want to change sin to anything else because sin shows us the law shows us sin that shows us that we have a need that we cannot meet that only the gospel can the ladies are going to be studying genesis the first chapters of genesis they're going to find there genesis chapter 3 And in Genesis chapter 3 was the biggest catastrophe of all human history when when the fall took place. And the fall was real. And, And when the fall took place, sin entered into the world and sin entered into mankind. And from that point on, we all are sinners. And we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And everything went into chaos in the universe. And in the creation. There's only one answer to the chaos. And that's the work of Christ on the cross. There's only one answer, and that is coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by his grace by His Holy Spirit's work in your life, and and saying, Lord, I repent of my sin. I confess my sin. I turn away from my sin. Lord, Your work in me has caused me to see the depth of my sin, and I want no part of it any longer. That's what the atonement does. Atonement is not just done so that we can say, well... Jesus will be nice on Sunday and I'll take the other six days and I'll do my own thing for my own self, for my own self-centeredness, whatever. I, 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 Sunday's nice. I'll give it to Jesus. I'll add him on to my life. The gospel changes our life. There's still a war going on. We talked about it, preparing for it, and we'll see it big time next week in Romans chapter 7. But the thing you must understand before you're ready to understand the battle that is raging is that sin is an issue that must be dealt with. And it's not sins, it's sin. It's that which dwells within me, Paul says. And it's that which wars against me in this civil war within my own life. It's sin that has to be dealt with. It can only be dealt with by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other hope, there's no other way. And this table points us to that reality. I'm going to ask you to prepare yourself for this table by bowing your heads with me. Bowing your heads and praying silently where you are. The deacons who are going to serve this meal will come and prepare themselves on this front row. But I want you... Preparing your own heart. I want you saying, Lord, how does this first commandment point me to my need for forgiveness? You shall, have no, you shall worship no other God but me. How have I put myself or something else or someone else in a place that rightly only belongs to him. How do I take God's name in vain? I certainly don't say curse words that include his name, but are there other things? Whatever happened to sin? Never went away. Many just try to play like it does. David said in Psalm 139, Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Would you pray that right now before we come to this table? Would you just say, Lord, search me. And know my heart and help me see my true heart. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart and see if there be any hurtful, any sinful way in me. Lord, show it to me. Search me and know my heart. And see if there be any sinful way within me. And lead me, O Lord, in the everlasting way. Lead me, O Lord, in your will. Would you pray that? Would you prepare your hearts in that way? Would you examine yourself in that way, which Paul tells us to do when we come to this table?